the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. My name is Nicole Kyle. I'm a part of the staff team at High Point. I am here with Nick Gibson, who is our lead pastor, and I oversee worship. And um, we're going to cover a bunch of AMA questions, ask me anything questions from our sermons. Going back to um, August 22nd. It's um, been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. Actually, I want to say this uh, as we get going. Uh, Hannah on, who is uh, my content assistant who works with us, is working more on getting some more episodes that are not AMA, yeah. but that are focused on engaging and equipping, especially what we call in-house our tier three leaders that are pe- that is people who are volunteers who are responsible enough to be in charge of something like a small group or a like a hospitality team or something like people who do ministry, not just like in a, a, a very simple volunteer sense, like I'm going to shake these people's hands, but people who like help other people serve in like people who are trained in ministry. We don't have to be around them when they're serving because we trust them. We, mm-hmm. we know they're going to do the right stuff. In the Bible, the category is deacon. Mm-hmm. You know, not everybody that I'm talking about as a tier three leader is called a deacon in our church structure. Right. But it's the kind of person that like there's a problem, it has spiritual implications, people need to be served, but the people ministering the word and prayer don't have time to do that too. So we need somebody spiritually mature enough to do that. That level of spiritual leadership is what makes churches great or bad. Mm-hmm. like how good that level of leadership is. And that's what this podcast is all about. Engaging yep. and equipping leaders on that level, helping them grow and bring people from level one and level two. Like I'll serve, but I don't want any responsibility. I don't mm-hmm. want to, I don't want to be in charge of being a minister to, to the place where they'll be like, okay, I'm not going to be amazing at it, but I'm going to do it. And I've, right. I've become moderately competent, which is what is needed. Right. right. So, um, so we are, we're going to kind of like reboot a little bit in terms of just like content and episodes and really try to get people. Yeah stuff that they can be engaged and equipped by. Uh, now I want to just talk more about that. So maybe you and Hannah should do an episode where you guys just talk more about why that matters. Like why, why those sorts of people make or break a church and it's like the, why it's, it's it is yeah. the ministry of the church. It might be better just to do that as our podcast on yeah. these questions. But yeah, it's, it's so important because um, what, one of the things we talk about sometimes at high point on our staff team and in our, in our volunteer moments is the, how everything in, in uh, our life has been professionalized. Right. So you have to like, to help somebody, you have to have a master's in social work, right? Mm-hmm. Which is only a three-year degree and a thousand hours of, you know yeah. what I mean? And that's just not true. Mm-hmm. It is true if you get more good training, you are often better at things. Right. And oftentimes the harm people do when they don't understand certain problems well is not done. But what it also means is there's way less care given mm-hmm. by a factor of, I don't know, a hundred or a thousand. Yeah. And so uh, G.K. Chesterton once said, not insultingly of women, there's nothing so cheap as a mother, meaning not w- that women are cheap or that mothers are cheap, but that like you you can't pay people to take care of children. Mm-hmm. Somebody has to care about these little briskets enough to like put their whole life on hold and like just take care of these little humans mm-hmm. because it's so much stinking work. Right. And if you don't have somebody that has so much natural affection for these little critters that they'll just do it, that they'll just put everything else in their life on hold to love them. You can't create a government program that's going to do that properly. Yeah. You can't get enough women or men or anybody or robots to love these creatures such as they need to be developed properly. And the mm-hmm. more we know about the first three years of life, the more that's true, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's true in Christian ministry of people's just lives in general. That for people to flourish, people who are relatively competent have to put so much of their own selfish desires, their selfish ambitions and vain conceits kind of on hold yeah. and just really care about the other person right in front of them in a way that's just helpful yeah. in Jesus name and according to the gospel and the truth that they're helped. And if you don't have a bazillion people doing that who don't have degrees, you cannot have a healthy world. 
It's funny because like we, everything, we, we live in a culture that also tries to, to automate as much as we can mm-hmm. to make things as efficient as possible. I was just on campus this morning sitting in Valencia coffee and I saw a food delivery robot yeah. drive by. There's the yeah, other downtown now. That's I had funny. never heard of them, let alone seen one. And it had a sign on it that said, I would love to deliver burgers to you. Just go in by itself down East campus mall. But there's just certain things you can't automate. You can't turn into robots. And yeah. there so, and, and we, we just have to remind ourselves of that, that like, it's not just the work of the pastors to think intellectually and deeply about these sorts of questions that we're going to talk about right now. Yeah. Like this, what we should do is deliver all these questions to small group leaders and then have them be discussion, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, not yeah. that it's not helpful. Obviously we think this is worthwhile. We're sitting and doing this, but yeah, it's easy to get caught up in that trap. We are more and more a culture that has accumulated so much knowledge that we pay no attention to and do not really apply. And that really use as an excuse not to grow as a person and not to do what we we really should do. Yeah. And so we've become this this group of like kind of inane talkers, self-justifying inane talkers. I, I call it in, in some of the talks I do now on substance. Like I was just at Lloyd's Church and I, I had a slide called, it's called morality laundering mm. through sophisticated language. And we kind of like, we come up with like sophisticated language to like take stuff and we just, we like, there's this laundering process where we turn like fear into anxiety. Like we, we medicalize and psychologize things yeah, so that it takes the moral weight out of it. And we can just be like, we can make excuses for ourselves yeah. and we're so good at that, but we're not really good at saying like, you know what? I'm going to change this mm-hmm. year really is going to be different mm-hmm. or I'm going to make this choice and it's going to take me like three years to really change my behavior. Yeah. But like, I'm going to start that path right now and I'm going to focus on it every single day and, um, People don't want to do that. Yeah. And, but that's what Jesus wants. So if you're someone who's listening, that's, I mean, we talk about this, we say this, Nick, you just said this already, but that's our desire that these things would be beneficial, Mm -hmm. that they truly would help you form into a substantive disciple for your local church, Mm -hmm. whether that's high point or a different church. And I hear that. Like I hear that when I go out into the, to the outdoor lobby after church, it's pretty common. I hope people talk to me about the podcast and who they talked with it about and how it, they talked about it at their family devotions or they talked about it with yeah. their kid driving around or they, they played it for their kid or they talked about it with their friends on campus. So I think that people are doing that with this. I just, yeah. as the apostle Paul says, I encourage you to do it more and more. All the more. Yeah. yeah. All right. So let's get to it. Here's the first question. We had a question that came up from small group discussion based on first Corinthians 12, 22 through 24. We're wondering what the, quote, unrepresentable parts are in the church. Does it mean treating people's problems with discretion or are there people who the church should take out of the limelight? Or does it mean that those with more unusual gifts should be humble or something else entirely? So let me read the passage in question. If we if they were all one body. So this is chapter chapter 12 in First Corinthians. Um, chapter 12 through 14 focuses on the work of the Holy Spirit, specifically in the presence of the Holy Spirit in the whole body of Christ, specifically in rep- in relationship to the, in chapter 12, to the unity and diversity. Mm-hmm. That the gifts are totally diverse just as the Holy Spirit intends them, but he intends that for a unifying purpose as a single body, right? Chapter 13 then is the famous chapter about love, but it's actually about spiritual gifts. Right. And that it's about um, spiritual gifts only function properly when they exist within the virtues of love patience and kindness and all that kind of thing. And then in chapter 14, there's like practical instructions of like, how do you engage in things like prophesying in church or speaking in tongues and how should elders or leaders in the church help adjudicate that so that it's healthy 
rather than like a certain, a, like a bad kind of emotionalism or something like that. Okay. Mm-hmm. So in chapter 12, there's this emphasis on both unity and diversity. And so um, in these latter verses, he's already covered the diversity that the spirit gives the gifts just as he pleases. And then he comes around to a metaphor of the body again in order to demonstrate a unity. Because what he's saying is, is like the human body has lots of different kinds of parts, but it makes up one body. Mm-hmm. And the one bodiness is actually in some ways more important than the distinct absolute diversity of the parts. Right. And he says the way we know that is because we actually treat parts differently, partly on the basis of their notoriety. So like your hands, for example, they're not a private part. They're not a, like a part anybody's ashamed of. And so we don't do anything special. They're just, we adorn them. Maybe we put rings on them, but we don't do anything special with them. Whereas like, like our reproductive parts, we tend to cover those up, right? Even though they're kind of vitally important parts, we don't show them off like we do our hands or our faces or whatever. Does that make sense? And so here, when it talks about, it talks about three different categories. It talks about parts that are weaker, but that are indispensable. That's in verse 22, right? And then there's parts we think are less honorable, but we treat with special honor, right? That's, that's probably a reference to, to reproductive organs, mm-hmm. external reproductive organs, <clears throat> right? And um, the parts that are unpresentable, we treat with special modesty. You might, um, your poo evacuator, like would fall <laughs> under this perhaps, <laughs> that kind of thing. So there are these, par- there are these parts that are like, um, that they don't get the normal notoriety, Right. And yet they are kind of critical for your body to function. Like if, talk to an older person who's had an impacted bowel and they will tell you that one of your seemingly unpresentable parts is incredibly indispensable. Uh-huh. I've never heard it called a poo evacuator before. I'm trying to come up with a language that our more conservative Christian friends will not <laughs> find appreciate. vulgar and therefore uh-huh. a, a uh, not listening to, to Ephesians 5. So, um, yeah, so I, I think that the reference, so the, the, one of the questions here is, is like, is the reference here two particular spiritual gifts? Like, can you, can you collate like the modesty we give reproductive organs to something like the gift of helps, which like, isn't a super popular gift. It's mm-hmm. not like the wow gift, but it like, it makes everything go or the gift sure. of administration. Like mm-hmm. administration is like not a sexy gift, but it's like, you show me a church without people with administrative gifts and I'll show you chaos. Yeah. Right. Right. And probably a lack of health and probably a church that isn't growing or isn't reaching people or isn't, it doesn't function well organizationally and therefore organically. So um, so it could be that it could also be that the, the word charisma or the gift of God is meant to be interpreted a little bit more broadly than that. So anything that is given from God or allowed by God that can function as something nourishing to the local church is a charisma or a gift. Does that make sense? In other places, in first, even in first Corinthians, marriage is referred to as a charisma or a gift. So a singleness, mm-hmm. right? He says, one of us has this gift, the other that meaning singleness or marriage. And he, he calls that a charisma or a gift, right? So, um, it just means a grace. Right. So what is the grace here? So, um, for example, Jürgen Moltmann, who's a, a, a sort of a strange German theologian, but that a lot of people that are more liberal in their theology really like, he, um, he associates with unpresentable disabled people in the church mm-hmm. that like they are a certain kind of gift, right? There, there's a special thing. You can't kind of create it, but with, but they're more vital than you, than you think they are because how you treat them demonstrates how human you are and sure. whether or not you're ruthless. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so, um, so that would include then again, then poverty. Right. It would include um, people who are like racially other in a particular group. So when I go to India, that would be me. Mm-hmm. When Manohar is here in America, that would be him. Does that make sense? So there's like people who would like would not naturally function. So all of these things, um, the Apostle Paul is saying, they're all part of the body. They all have a certain kind of related effect, and God uses all of the idiosyncrasies 
for the one body. And, and the thing that I think shows that it might be broader than just um, gifts is because it says that when that there should be equal concern. So this is verse 25. Um, so that there should be no division in the body, right? That's not just gifts. That's everything, right? Right. But that its parts should have equal concern for each other, right? So that's just shared affection, mm-hmm. right? And then he says, verse 26, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. I think in those verses, he gets more general. We're supposed to understand that. So it's these spiritual gifts he's going to refer to. He's going to refer back to them in the following verses. But I think he understands that like everything related to us being one body, he's talking about there. And then he gets more specific about the spiritual gifts again. And he talks about different ones. So I think it refers to both characteristics that are graces that God allows or gives Mm -hmm. that makes us a more diverse body and that allows us to figure out how to love and grow with each other and to use these, use different kinds of assets that may, so for example, right now, if we had, if one of our pastors was African-American, that would be very helpful for cultural reasons we have no control over. Mm -hmm. Just people feel certain ways about certain things relative to race. And that's that. So if one, if one of our pastors was African-American, that would just be a charisma. It would be a gift. It would be a a, just a happening, a mm-hmm. happenstance that was beneficial for some action that would help us all be one body of Christ together, right? right? Currently, we don't have that that gift, but we have other gifts on our pastoral staff, right? And in our staff. Sure. So like, I think it includes that, but it also includes speaking tongues and the gift of prophecy and apostleship and all those kinds of things, right? So I think, I think that the answer is it's a big, it's a big tent. And when you look at unpresentability, that could refer to either gifts that are overlooked Mm-hmm. Or it could also look to things in people that are overlooked that cause folks not to have equal concern for each other. Right. I remember one um, non-majority person in church say one time, I, fa- I found High Point to be a very friendly place. And I have found virtually no one who wants to spend time with me. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is one of those heartbreaking things I've heard in my pastoral career. Um, but I think that's, th- that's like Paul saying, I'm not just talking about being nice to people or being generally gracious. But to actually get to the point where we love each other such that we have equal concern for one another. Right. And the differences that that would naturally make you not concerned about people, whether that they're old or that they're too young or that they're stupid teenagers or whatever, or whether it's their their, uh, race and therefore their cultural and natural interests that might not be similar to yours or their political beliefs. Like those are all in some ways charismata. They're gifts that God has given to teach us how to love and teach us how to be one body together and to be diverse enough to reach all the people he wants us to reach. Yeah. So that's kind of what I would do with that. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Okay. We're going to go into a bunch of questions from a sermon you preached on September 5th. This was the last sermon before we started the unbrandable series. So this was, um, from Ezekiel 25 and 35. Before we do that, can you give me a very, very, very brief summary of what you preached? Yeah, in Ezekiel 25, God um, proclaims condemnation for a few nations that surrounded Judah because they hated them and rejoiced at Judah's downfall. And so he says this, this is verse 6 and verse 25. For this is what the sovereign Lord says, because you clapped your hands and stamped your feet rejoicing with all the malice of your heart against Israel. Therefore, I'll stretch out my hand against you and make you a plunder to the nations. Right. Because you said, so it's there throughout this, this passage is this idea that like, because you rejoiced in the downfall of others. And the thing that makes it specifically incredibly important is that God was judging Judah. So this is even taking pleasure in the downfall of others 
when the downfall is so righteous that God himself is doing it. So even right. when they are rightly being destroyed, you, you rejoice in that. Yeah. You do not participate in that. Even right. when God is, God doesn't want you to rejoice when he is destroying somebody. Mm-hmm. And once you get that, then you, then there's no time when you rejoice when somebody's getting right. destroyed, right. which is hopefully instructive to people in a cancel culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it's much broader than that, obviously. Yeah. It's yeah. every, every year of human affairs. So I tried to hit that as hard as I could. Yeah. Okay. So thank you for that. How much responsibility do we have for giving people consequences for their actions rather than allowing natural consequences to happen? Okay. So the way I interpret this question is somebody does something wrong that we might have a natural consequence. We could just leave that go or we could get in there and we could give them artificial judicial consequences in addition to that or before that. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's not about, should we let the natural consequences happen or should we give them mercy and help them? It's like, should we give them like a penalty? Right. Right. Um, I think that penalties are necessary in cases when there are a lot of things that don't have natural consequences or the natural consequences are so removed mm-hmm. from the actions themselves or that, that numerous other people are paying pr- the price as well. So yeah. it, it, you, you can do something. So for example, if I laundered all the money at High Point Church and Everybody at High Point Church lost their job, but I also lost my job, right? Um, that's really not enough because I've ruined, I've now affected thousands and thousands of people. Yeah. Does that make sense? So I might deserve a much larger judicial, judicial penalty than just losing my job or maybe going to jail for laundering money. Does that make sense? So I think the judicial question of what people, what, what penalty people would deserve is not directly related to the natural consequences. And mm-hmm. God doesn't seem to believe that anywhere in the Bible, that like that natural consequences are sufficient. He seems to believe that the natural consequences on the human mind and soul is sufficient to self-condemn a person. That is to draw them further into sin and to be bound by it. But it doesn't necessarily increase the level of punishment to its proper height. That's why God all through scripture says his condemnation is judicial and additional mm-hmm. to natural consequences. Yeah. Does that make sense? But so, that doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean it's my job to do right. it. That's a whole other step of logic that I have not considered here. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to give a little bit of thought to that part? Like how much I think of we the actually are going to get into that have? a little bit in some of the next questions. Okay, then let's move on. Based on the passages you spoke to in your sermon, should Christians be opposed to the death penalty? Yeah. So, man, this is. This isn't super complicated, but it gets at a relatively complicated issue of Bible interpretation, which is, can general principles override specific statements, mm. right? And generally speaking, I would say the answer is no, right? The one, one of the areas where this gets really touchy is in the area of complementarianism and egalitarianism, whether or not there, there are gender role distinctions in the local church, because the general statements in the scripture are all absolutely universal. And the specific ones related specifically to gender and our complementary interaction are, are definite and specific, and so if you interpret the general ones to override the specific statements, then you're going to get a, a gender equality where gender equality means no distinction between gender roles. Mm-hmm. It, otherwise, you would integrate the two. You would say, well, the specific thing means what it specifically says. So I have to take the general statement relative to the specific statements so that the, the general statement doesn't override the specific statements, but the two incorporate each other, which is where we get complementarianism, the idea that men and women are equal, of equal value, of equal capacity, but there are slight differentiations in their roles in the church so as to have flourishing human society in a complementary way. Okay. Relative to the death penalty, um, 
there are numerous passages in the Bible that specifically teach that, that, that the death penalty can be just in numerous circumstances. In, on, in the most general possible principle in um, Genesis chapter 9, God explicitly says relative to his statement that human beings are made in his image, that the result of killing another human being is that you must be killed. And that the reason for that is because you've killed someone who's made in the image of God and you forfeited your life by doing so. So the, so the natural theology baseline for the penalty for killing a human being before there is a people of God, before there is a Jewish nation, before there is a Jesus, um, the man, Jesus Christ, there is this idea that God says that, um, the cost of taking an image bearing human's life is the person who did its life. Right. Mm -hmm. And that holds true pretty much throughout the whole of the scriptures. There's nothing in the new Testament. I think that demonstrates in any way conclusively that, governments don't have the right to institute the death penalty in cases that are presumed righteous. And then it nowhere outlines what is or is not a righteous circumstance. And that's one of the reasons why throughout all of Christian history, what counts as a legitimate action, criminal action, so as to incur the death penalty and what is the proper level of evidence has varied widely. Mm. Right. Um, I tend to believe that we're closer now than we were like in the 1700s. Um, like if you go back to the middle 1800s, uh, stealing a horse would get you hanged. <laughs> but in the West, before it was settled, if you stole somebody's horse out in the middle of nowhere, it could mean their death. And so preventing horse stealing, right? But sure. oftentimes horse stealing wasn't differentiated. It wasn't like if you stole a horse in a situation where somebody could die. Right. It was just if you stole a horse. <laughs> yeah. So in in Britain, in the time of John Wesley, he was he was appalled at the kinds of like seemingly petty crimes that one could be hanged for in the British empire. Um, And so uh, for example, even now, like even mutinous actions in naval situations, which were considered the most obvious situation where somebody should be hanged at sea. um, We court martial people. Now they lose their rank and are expelled from the military, Mm -hmm. you know, in most cases. So, um, so I don't think that there, if, if you believe in the specifics of scripture, it would be very difficult to say that the God that inspired all of these direct statements where capital punishment is legitimate, that now because of the general principles of graciousness, we should never do that. Um, I think it's, I, I just think that that's using the general to overrule the specific in a way that's unhelpful. And you'd have to believe that God of the Old Testament is just a completely different God and that he functions morally sure. in a completely different way, which I just don't think is true. This is a side question that I that I have that I imagine others might have. Suppose you're in a situation where like you have been wronged, you have had a family member who was killed or something. Mm-hmm. Do you think they're in that instance? Like what, what do you think of a Christian who would say, I understand that even in scripture, God gives these specific things, but mm-hmm. I don't want the death penalty for that person. Like, yeah. how do you think that plays into it? Um, yeah. So I think, I don't think that because now, I, I, I believe that the principle in Genesis 9 is a universal principle. So I think that the proper penalty for somebody who murders another person is their death. Okay. Um, I, don't, I don't know of a good argument against that. Um, in terms of civil human life, I do think that murderers can be redeemed. Now, um, relative to... So as somebody who's been in this situation, so under the old, so my, so my dad was killed by a reckless driver mm-hmm. under the old Testament categorization, um, profound negligence, you forfeited your life unless you could get to a city of refuge. Mm-hmm. And then if you ever left that city of refuge, you could be killed and you could be killed by the family members right. of the person who you killed. Right. And so, um, 
So on, by, old, by the Old Testament law, I had the right to kill the person who killed my dad, but I, I didn't. And, and because I do, I do think that the administration of the, of the legal um, nation that the Torah functioned under the, the first five books of the Bible mm-hmm. is not what I'm living under now. Right. And I have to, I have to distinguish now the moral principles that God used mm-hmm. in moving that society forward in the, in the fundamental universal moral principles beneath it, I think are still true. I don't think those are false, but the administration of that state under the law where everybody is an agreed covenant member of the community of God, and they know those laws already, and they are supposed to live by them, and they've covenanted to live by them, and they've had them enforced on their behalf, Mm -hmm. as well as against them. None of that was true. Right. It went out in America in, you know, 20, whatever, 2003, I think is when when my dad died. So... I, so I don't think that um, we can say it because the Old Testament said it was a death penalty yeah. in the Torah that therefore, right, that somebody should be killed now. Um, so for example, there's some things in one, one of the arguments is about homosexuality, for example, because in Leviticus um, chapter 21, along with a bunch of other sexual sins, male homosexual sex is considered a stonable offense. Yet in the New Testament, in First Corinthians, a very similar list of sins is adjudicated with church discipline, hmm. right? So, so we don't live in a Christian right. state. And we live in the church. And the way the church um, deals with this is, in the Old Testament, the phrase was, someone has to be, quote, cut off, right? right? Which could have meant being killed, and it could also mean expelled from the people of God. Hmm. And what the Apostle Paul clearly believes is that both in cases of the death penalty and in cases of being quote cut off and those sorts of relationships through church discipline, the church expels the immoral brother to put it in first Corinthians five terms saying, you can't say you're part of the church, part of the life of God and behave that way. You have to be quote expelled in, in first Corinthians five. It's not homosexual sex. It's specifically related to um, a stepson taking his stepmother probably is what it's referred to. He says a, a man has his father's wife. Mm-hmm. So probably stepmother. Right. And that, that is Paul's like, you can't, you can't just sit around and be like, that's okay. But he didn't say, so you should stone him. Right. He's like, you have to expel this person from the church and, and also not permanently. Right. If that For person goes out and he repents, he's like, I, you're right, this is wrong. And he comes back to repentance, then he's to be embraced. Now what that shows is two things. One is, is that the moral commandment that Paul is enforcing comes from the Old Testament. So the, so the, the sexual rule is still valid. But the penalty associated with it has been fundamentally transformed in the nature of the people of God right. in the church, as opposed to the people of God as a legal, societal, theocratic group of people, which is the Old Testament oh, Jews. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So sometimes people just don't, they don't want to think that through. Sure. How the Old Testament relates to the New Testament. But but that's kind of how that works. So no, we don't. We don't have the right to enforce penalties like in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean the moral principles aren't correct. Now, if somebody just says, I just feel like I should be gracious, gracious and show love and mercy towards the person who murdered my husband or my, right. even my child. Right. Um, I don't think that's an unchristian action. Um, I don't think it's the only Christian action. Right. However, it doesn't have to be a requisite for right. the Christian. Who's and I think a Christian can also say, I forgive you judicially in a legal society. You killed an image bearer. And I believe that the society has the obligation to kill you. I think that's probably the most correct New Testament answer. Because I, I do believe that the command in Genesis 9 is a universal command. So, so long as a society has a relatively just system and has a relatively high evidential thing, mm-hmm. like the, so the evidence is very clear, right. then I think that I, I believe that death penalties be preferred. But I don't, 
I don't think that that's, I'm not super strong on that. Yeah. But I do think that if, if somebody says, please forgive me, like the person who killed my father, right? Right. I had to speak his trial. I had to like make an adjudication. I had to like uh, encourage the court what to do with his penalty. And I was just like, you should do what you would do with any human being. Mm-hmm. My father was, if, the guy, if he would have run over a homeless guy mm-hmm. who had done nothing but bad stuff his whole life, mm-hmm. the penalty should be the same. Right. The reason why we're giving this person a sentence is not because my dad was a good man and he was. It was because my dad was a human being. And he should get whatever the state determines determines for that penalty. Um, but I, as a person, to the extent to which he asks for forgiveness, I offer it. Right? Yeah. So yeah. I do. Th- I do think Christians have the right to be gracious. I think they they can be. I think they should be. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that means that legal ramifications should go by the apply. wayside. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the difference. I mean, Luther talked about the difference between the state and the church. What's the difference between the state and the church? And in cases of like this, it's the, the church is the adjudicator of mercy and the state is the adjudicator of the sword. And both are very important, you know? Yeah. Um, and they, I think it is good for them to work together because sometimes the adjudication of the sword is too much. Right. Um, but yeah, but, but it is true that human beings need the sword. We're not good, you know? That's, that's one of the reasons why Paul could say in First Corinthians, in, in Romans 13, that even under Nero's government, that it was still the job of the government to bear the sword, to reward those who did good and to punish those who did evil. Mm-hmm. And that that was a necessary function in a fallen world. And it still is. Right. You know? Right. Okay. Thank you. We spent more time on that, but I think that's important because I think this is something that I think that a lot of people have feelings about, which are, are valid to have, <sighs> but don't, like you said, don't give a lot of thought to. Mm-hmm. I do think relative to, to a fee, sorry, Ezekiel 25 and 35, that the idea of like triumphing over somebody's downfall, even when it's a righteous downfall would apply to legal situations that when somebody like is thrown in prison for the rest of their lives because of something they yeah. did, I don't think the right Christian response is you deserve it. Right. You, to like, rejoice in that, to rejoice mm-hmm. in it because mm-hmm. of your, the malice in your heart. Right. I, I, I just, dis- I, yeah, I, yeah. I think that we shouldn't do that. Right. Okay. Would you consider it to be human condemnation if you have judgment or discernment about something, but you don't share those thoughts with the person your thoughts are directed towards? So you don't share them, you keep them to yourself, but you still have the thoughts. Right. Okay. So first I want to redistinguish between discernment and judgment. Discernment is recognizing the meaning of something, even if that meaning is negative. And judgment is like in your heart, under like determining the condemnation of something. Right. So judgment can mean two things in the Bible. It can mean discernment. This is what that thing is. Or it can mean condemnation. Yeah. That the thing should be punished, destroyed forever. It will forever be that thing. Right. And those are, that's a very big difference. Mm -hmm. Jesus condemns condemnation. He does not condemn discernment. Discernment. He demands we discern. Right. And demands we do not condemn. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you have discernment in your heart, that just means you're growing in wisdom. Praise the Lord. God is good. Right. If it's judgment, then I think the question is, is that that's that would be that would classify as a temptation mm. and so the question then is what do you do with it sure right if intuitionally that is the thing that comes up in your heart you don't know where it comes from you're just somehow you're oriented yeah. towards it and it comes up inside of you what do you do with it right as as believers we know that because we are both made in the image of god and broken we don't just go along with anything that comes out of our inner yeah. orientations yeah. whatever kind they are right we have to discern their moral legitimacy and value and then choose something right yeah so what i would say is you you don't go along with it with your will you don't allow your reason to be taken hold of to be used as a tool to legitimize it and you don't allow in your emotions for you to revel in it 
right? Mm-hmm. And in doing so, you are trying to put to death the flesh, yeah, right? And to take that ta- thought captive to Christ, no longer be conformed to the this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Yeah. And so if you choose that, then no, I don't think it's condemnable or damnable or sinful or whatever. Mm-hmm. If you do go along with temptation, it does tend to lead to very bad places, including sin and yeah. condemnation, you know? Great. Are we complicit in the failure of leaders because we put them on pedestals and give them accolades, even though that kind of position brings temptations and struggles that very few people can handle? Uh, Yes. And how much we are complicit is relative to every situation and what we demand of people. I I think the, I think part of the issue is, is that um, leaders do need our encouragement and our support. Mm. So I'm with you, right? Like I'm with you. And, um, I support you and you're doing a good job. Like that's good. Right. Um, it's like, there's a really fine line between encouragement and flattery. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so a lot of people have, are just trying to say good job because they know that like the, like a lot of people when they ask this question, they're thinking of like large church pastors who have taken big falls. Right. And you can say, okay, all those people who said to Mark Driscoll all those years, Hey, great job. You're doing right. a great job. You're doing just whatever the Seattle needs is so much. Right. Mm-hmm. Were they flattering him or were they trying to encourage him knowing that he had a lot of opposition? Right. And the answer is, I don't know. Right. It was different for every person. Probably any, any person who was trying to encourage him, him, recognizing that he was up against a lot, like that's good. Yeah. Right. And so I don't think those people were complicit in whatever fall there was related to his ministry, which I don't have an opinion about. Um, or others, right? So I think complicity starts entering in when you are flattering them because you want to get something from them or mm-hmm. you have a codependent, really codependent relationship in which right. they tell you what you want to hear. And so you tell them what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. Complicity has some kind of sin like that built into it. If you're just trying to encourage and support leaders, that's just part of knowing what leadership involves and how hard it is mm-hmm. and being there for them. Right. Um, one of the things I really, I really focus on, on the staff team here is, I, I think it's good for us to encourage each other. I think it's really good for us to support each other. But I want to know that if I do something morally wrong, right? Um, people are going to be like, wait, I support you because I support God. Because mm-hmm, <laughs> like I'm mm-hmm. with the Lord, so I'm with you. Right. And when you... Not just because of you. This is yeah. not tied to you. This is right. tied to the Lord. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's dif- that is also difficult because everybody wants to have personal affection. Like on one level, like I right. want everybody to follow me just as far as I'm with the Lord. On another level, I, I do want some people to like me just for me. Mm-hmm. You know, the problem is, is that almost nobody can because almost nobody knows me well enough. Mm-hmm. Right. So to the extent I am a symbol, which is what I really am in most people's mind, I, I symbolize something yeah. to them. I'm not a, mm-hmm. I'm not a person. I'm an object. I have to accept that that's the way they're going to treat me and know me. And then I have to accept that in our relationship. So they'll support me to what they think I am. And that's good because that's all they can know. Yeah. Right. But I also have to recognize that, like, I have to have some people that know me as a subject, as a person. Yeah. And those people have to have more weight. And those people have to be able to stop me, all that kind of stuff, right? So um, com- I think complicity is always in the presence of sin, like flattery, codependency, those kinds of things. And not just in encouragement. And not just in giving people authority or trying to, giving, trying to give them a, a bigger voice. Because you are trying to influence, right? I do think that there has to be some wisdom about, like the nature of the nature of um, power, the nature and like, especially with pastors because we do so many jobs and because pastors do like 35 things. Like if you go back for Don Cross, you say this, if you went back like 50 years or 60 years, maybe now, and you said, what do pastors do? 
The list is like four things. You know, they, <laughs> mm-hmm. they adjudicate communion, which takes no preparation. They preach a sermon, usually 20 minutes or less in most American churches. Mm. And, and not at a very high level of quality because mm-hmm. there weren't TVs and, and like right. there wasn't streaming internet. There wasn't all this competition of chaotic yeah. information. Yeah. So what you had to do on a Sunday morning was not like crazy awesome. You just had to faithfully share the scriptures to people. You would visit people and counsel them. Mm-hmm. And then you try to do some evangelism, share the gospel with people who don't know it. Right. Mm-hmm. That's it. That was your whole life. You're fine. Right. That's not true anymore. Yeah. Right. We're, we're fighting a tide. Mm-hmm. We're trying to hold back the ocean. Yeah. And so some people recognize that and they try to comfort us. But like my wife has always said, it's not that people don't encourage you. It's that this model is impossible for any human being. Right. Nobody can do this. It doesn't matter how many attaboys they get. Mm-hmm. And that's why all these pastors are imploding. And yeah. people, he, she's like, what is it? What does it matter if you make it? Like this is, I mean, these are not direct quotes from Alexa. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> no, but I... her philosophy is kind of her, like, and I think that the, the reason I say this is because I agree with her. Right. If I persevere in this model, right, it may be worse than if I don't. Because if I do, then people will look at Nick. He did it fine. Like, why can't you do it? What's wrong with you? Right. Mm-hmm. And if I implode, I, I hurt everybody. Right. Yeah. And she's like, this isn't, this model isn't right. Like people can't keep their hearts and be a CEO and preach the gospel and care maintain more about God families. than maintaining their job yeah. and all that and care for their children. Of course, her main focus is caring for children. Yeah. You know? Well, I think that there's another side to this too, which is the 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 responsibility on the person who the person who's asking this question but like the person who is being led and being pastored mm-hmm. to be to recognize that to recognize that you that humans have god-given limitations mm-hmm. that humans have the capacity for both good and evil at the same time Mm-hmm. And that if that there is a responsibility on our part, I mean, this is sort of what you were saying that we should follow leaders in as much as they are following God, right. but that we, we have to be, sometimes we have to take our own assessment of how much am I idolizing this person mm-hmm. in a very real sense. Yeah. And do I need to, because then you're going to, you will be let down when you recognize that the person is a sinful person too, yeah. and they don't respond exactly the way you wanted them to respond. And so if they are all good before, then they're just going to be all bad now. Um, so there's, there is, I think we've just got to do a good job ourselves at recognizing that that duality that happens at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots of stuff I want to say about that, but I totally agree with that. Yeah. Okay. Can you speak to the pitfall of perfectionism, the overjudgment of ourselves and others? Yeah. So, so some, sometimes the way I deal with this with younger people, I try to do this with my kids. I don't know if it worked well or not, was I would say there, you know, when Aristotle met, said perfect, teleos, he meant the greatest of all possible ways you could conceive of something. And when the Hebrews said perfect, they meant mature, whole, or complete, right? And so if you have a watermelon that has like a good rind and like good meat inside and like some seeds and some green and light green, right? That's a perfect watermelon, Mm -hmm. right? It's only not perfect if it's like rotten or like there's some like major flaw with it, right? As opposed to the greatest of all possible watermelons. Right. right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And so it, it depends on what you think you ought to be. Like so much of this yeah. is bound up in like what ought you to be. One of the reasons why why girls have such difficulty with body image right now is 
it's it's so funny because like I, like I'm 44 now, so like everybody's pretty when they're young to me. Like, and if you're less than 30, well, I mean probably 35 or something like that. I'm just kind of like you're just young, you're pretty. What's the you know? But that's they see it in terms of like con- the competition and am I going to live up to this ideal and what are people looking for and am I what they're looking for and why aren't people paying attention to me and so on, right? Mm-hmm. And it's because everybody's looking for the greatest of all possible whatevers, especially because you only live once and we're going to die. Like everybody functions like an atheist. Yeah. So they need the perfect person or something and they don't realize it's just going to bring them misery. So I think trying to get people to understand you're not supposed to be perfect, Aristotle perfect. You're supposed to be Hebrew perfect. Yeah. Like just whole, just mm-hmm. complete. And what God wants is maturity. That is perfection. Right. And that's going to have like, you know, you could have apples with like little scabs and stuff on them, but if they're like a good apple, it's a perfect apple, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and we're just, we're supposed to be perfect in that sense, complete, mature. That's it. And the only way to get there, it says in Colossians is to be filled with all the fullness of Christ. Yeah. And so the apostle Paul says it this way. He says, I have tried to speak to you the word of God in all its fullness. And in that we're supposed to see the fullness of Christ. And he says, so that we can be filled with all the fullness of God. That is the fullness of the spirit, the fullness in our character, the fullness as, as human beings. Right. And so I think that most of the things that we think of in relation to perfectionism, we're, we're just not good enough at something. And that's just not the point. Yeah. And I don't think that it's, I don't think that there's a simple way to just be like, well, I should just not care as much. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking that as you were talking that yeah. it's, it's hard to let go of that, especially if that's a paradigm you've lived in for a long time. Yeah, it is. I think the Sabbath is meant to try to help us with that mm. to just be like, look, if I worked seven days a week instead of six, I could get more done and I could get closer. And the yeah, answer is, yeah. yep, that's why you give up that day. Right. Or if I had 10% more money and I didn't tithe, I didn't give, yeah, I could, I could achieve. do more. I could, I could achieve more. My car could be a little nicer. I could wear cooler clothes. I could, right. yeah, but you're going to give away that 10%. You're going to intentionally handicap yourself and that's going to actually help you. Like mm. there's really interesting ways in which God holds us back from pursuing greedy mm-hmm. perfectionism mm-hmm. that is to be better than the people we're really competing with. Cause that's what we mean by perfection. Right. Being better. Right. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, mm-hmm. you're going to give away a seventh of your time and 10% of your money <laughs> to people who have no chance of winning. Yeah. Basically. And you're just going to rest and you're going to trust me to bless you. So that if you win, you win just because I blessed you because mm-hmm. of stuff you couldn't control, you couldn't yes. control or stuff you were just gifted with. And when you live like that, you're held back from your neighbors so like you lit, you like you have 10% less money than all your neighbors who are like equally as gifted as you work just as hard as you should earn about the same as you, but you have 10% less than them. Right. Right. And you're like, crap, I can't win this. Mm-hmm. I can't get the leather seats in my car. I just can't do it. I don't mm-hmm. have the money. And you're like, yep, exactly. Right. And that's good. Yeah. It's funny. I think that, um, that sort of limitedness, I, I have more and more friends in my cohort who are like using social media less and less. I'm an exa- I'm, I'm mm-hmm. trying to do that as well. Or it's just like turning your phone off. And I think social media is a really easy place to play that game, to mm-hmm. just compare yourself with everybody else around you. Yeah. And in limiting yourself from that, like that, just like, I'm not even going to look at the game. Right. I'm out. I'm out. Yeah. Like even that brings more of a sense of contentment. Yeah. Because you're just taking yourself out. Yeah. And I understand why it drives the market crazy because, you know, engagement drives economics in that realm. And, and, you know, you got to keep, you got to keep the machine running or everything collapses. Right. Like I get that, but, um, there's this old Swedish saying that bank farming and banking don't mix that like the way farms grow and mature isn't the way capital grows and matures. Yeah. And that, there are two different principles of life. 
yeah. and development and they just don't go together. Yeah. And that's not to say that we should all move out on homesteads and whatever. Cause I don't, I think, I mean, Christians have, Christians have really always been urban. I mean, the fact that America is more Christian outside of the cities is strange in the history of Christianity. Hmm. There's a fairly bigoted sure. chapter in a, in a book I was given um, by a student of, of a chapter of somebody on campus in the ag department being like, why are, and it, like he starts with this like conundrum because he, he, he goes to this farm and the farmer's like, yeah, Jesus taught me how to farm like this. And so many farmers are Christians. And he's like, isn't this weird? Because like Christianity, at least by the time of Constantine was like basically an urban religion and has always been an urban yeah. religion. And only now in America, basically, Christians hate cities and they want to buy like yeah. little farms <laughs> out in the country farms and in like Michigan. <laughs> do do like chic little like uh-huh. breweries and yeah. like heirloom hogs and stuff. Right. And so, um, and I want to do that too. Like I want to get the the heck out of the city. I don't like cities myself. I God bless Tim Keller. I mean, like, God bless him. Like I'm not against what he's saying. Yeah. I think what he says are good about cities are good. Yeah. But I think the stuff he says about I think he overlooks all the terrible things about cities. Yeah. I mean, my, my daughter was like, I love Chicago. She we were just Chicago. I hate Chicago. She's like, <laughs> I love being here. And, and I was like, why? She's like, because there's all these people around and nobody cares about you. Huh? And she, cause hmm. she loved the anonymity of it. Yeah. She loved that there were people everywhere and there's right. stuff going on, Yeah. but that there, it was totally impersonal. And she just loved the warm blanket of that. Hmm. And I'm like that, you realize it's like the most inhuman thing that could possibly exist. Yeah. Right. And she's like, yeah, kind of, but I kind of like it too. Mm-hmm. So, I think I can't remember where I was going with this. Um, let's, let's, I'm testing. How, like, how good are you figuring out where I was headed with that? Well, we're talking about perfectionism and getting out of the game. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's two, yeah, the two different kinds of things, right? Yeah. There's like an organic nature to life, right? And there's like there is a like a like an economic nature to life, right? And those are both real. And for yeah. most of us, we we have to participate in both of them. And so like you have to enter into like the commerce end where we're like we're trying to to offer the best good and service to the people around us in the best possible way. And it's like a narrow relationship and we really are enriching their lives and it's a good thing, right? right. Capitalism or whatever. Right. right. And then you can't go home and treat your husband that way. Right. Or your kids. Like, right. like it's a totally different principle. It's kind of like, I think Jonah Goldberg says this, that like in my home, I'm totally a Marxist, a hundred percent of Marxist yeah, yeah. to each according to their need from each according to their ability is, yeah. is the ethos of my home. It's Marxism. It's we're communists, right? Yes. But like the, I leave my house and I go into like the polis of human beings and how we all relate in our tribes towards you. He's like, and I am not yeah. I'm a Republican. Like uh-huh. I believe in like separation of powers and like, right. like some democracy, but mostly rights. <laughs> yeah. And like, I don't want people being able to, I don't want communism. I want the opposite of that. Right. And he's like, cause yeah. they're two fundamentally different kinds of human existence. And the problem is you come to the church and which is it? Right. Which is it? Mm-hmm. And the answer is it's probably more the organic one. Mm-hmm. And yet we're trying to reach people in a world that is functioning almost entirely by the, by the capitalistic Economic or market-based one. Yeah. And so how do you reach people who, who live their whole lives on based on these sort of like market principles while saying politically they hate capitalism. Right. And, and, and draw them back to this organic thing, which doesn't exist anywhere. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause progressivism politically is not organic either. Mm-hmm. Right. Neither they're, they're both functioning by macro principles yeah. that are so macro that they, neither of them work. Right. And so how do you do that? And the answer is, I, I don't really know. I, I function as an organization constantly pushing it in the organic direction. Right. So I'm creating an atmosphere or a space. There's, there's this, there's this farmer in, I want to say he's in Virginia or North Carolina. His name is Joel Salatin, Salatin, Salatin. I love this. He's hilarious. Okay. He's just like funny old farmer guy, but he's very intellectual, 
but he's he's a true farmer. Like he yeah. literally farms every day. And he said the best way to do this is to create fiefdoms within your farm. And so everybody has their their little economic place. Like this guy fixes tractors. Like that barn over there is where he fixes things. Yeah. And that's his thing. Yeah. And this person does vegetables and this person does hogs. And like they're you're all part of the farm, but you all have your own little fiefdom. Uh-huh. But you have this like organic union in the relational nature of everybody working together on the farm. And so you have to do your part economically so yeah. that your thing is productive, but you're interrelated to everybody else and trading with them in a way right. that is personal. And it's a really beautiful thing. But the problem is, is like, it takes a Joel salad and like, t- it takes a pastor to do it. It takes somebody who like leads benevolently as this kind of chief to bring these people together to do it. Does that make sense? And at some point it can't get bigger or you lose it all. And I, and that's really hard for people to adjudicate. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, that's a hard, that's a question that I think a lot of people have as a relates to the size of churches. I think yeah. that's why Deaver says, Mark Deaver says you get to a certain size of his church and then he's just going to split it off just and make a it. new one. Yep. Like Absolutely. Shouldn't get any bigger. We're just going to. Yeah. And that gets at both the issue of perfectionism. It also gets at the issue of, um, being complicit in big pastors falling mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. all those kinds of things. Because if you have a leader who's trained to be an organic leader, who's a farmer, i.e. a shepherd, let's say, right. And you make them like a general, an army general. Yeah the likelihood that either they're going to be incompetent because they're a shepherd mm-hmm. or that they're going to turn into a crazy general and not a shepherd at all is kind mm-hmm. of, and you can like, this is literally from the Bible. It's David. It's literally yeah, David, yeah. right? <laughs> like one of the only people in the history of humanity, God chose as a shepherd to make a general, to make a king mm-hmm. that he would still be a shepherd while a king. Right. And he was a man after God's own heart and he failed. Mm-hmm. He failed. Yep. And so that sound makes it sound like it's impossible. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. Except that Jesus might be the only one who could be a shepherd king. Yeah. And so I struggle when I'm in a position where it looks like I'm trying to be a shepherd king. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So that's not good reformed theology that believes that shepherd, that believes that pastors are prophets, priests, and kings. But we'll have to work on putting that together another time. <laughs> okay. We're going to, um, we're going to move away from that sermon. There were a couple others, other questions, but we got to keep moving. Um, we, we're going to do, we're going to blade through these next ones because okay. we've technically got 15 minutes before we're supposed to be done with this. So Nick, yes. Numbers 12 is used as a passage to never criticize a leader. What do you do when the leader you see is in error? Yeah. I, yeah, I, I mean, I just think this is a bad, I mean, I just, if I was going to go after somebody for coming after me as a leader, I would want and use this passage. I would want to be a lot more like Moses. You know what I mean? No. Okay. I, Moses, God spoke to him directly. Right. And he parted the Red Sea with God's Uh help and he brought the 10 plagues like um, the fact that they should have figured out that they shouldn't like stop Moses was probably pretty good you know Um, so let me give you another example okay so in this one Miriam and Aaron should not have confronted Moses okay great Um, should Paul have confronted Peter in Galatians 2 because Peter is is Jesus first in command Mm -hmm. there's no question about that Mm mm-hmm and Paul says it like just rebukes him. Mm-hmm. You like how dare you do this, right? Yeah. Um, there are places in the scriptures where people confront each other. 
Um, and so I, I just, um, the, the whole, like, you can't confront the Lord's anointed. Yeah. Cause it's this, but a lot of it is like, um, David not killing Saul is used just as much. And sometimes even more because Saul is behaving, clearly behaving badly mm-hmm. and he still, and David will not lift his hand to the Lord's anointed. And, and the idea here is, is that it is twofold. One, that God has anointed this person. And, and so God can kill him. Like God chose him and God can dethrone him. And that's God's thing. And I'm not going to mm-hmm. choose to do it. Right. But it's also like David realizes that like, if there's no structure to life, then everything can be chaos. Mm-hmm. Like if you can just kill the king. Yeah. And it's fine. And, and, you know, if you look at the history of Israel, that is what happens. It does devolve into that where people just kill each other, start killing each other, especially in the Northern kingdom. So I, I think it's important to recognize that like, yes, there are places because here's the thing. There are tons of situations in which people form a rabble and they go against their pastor or their spiritual leaders. And they are doing this. Like numbers 12 is a good example of what those people are doing. Right. And um, they do deserve judgment and yeah. they should never do that. And if the pastor were to quote numbers 12, they'd be correct. Mm-hmm. It's, it's also all it's, the time. Yes. And then the opposite is also true as right. well. Right. Where the person should be re- rebuked and that person is not in a good place. And so of course they think numbers 12 applies to the situation. Right. And so they and quoted it people yeah. and people who are really controlling, um, don't have good limiting principles and they don't uh-huh. go, well, you know what? I've actually, I actually deserve this. Yeah. You know, they yeah. don't do that. Yeah. So um, we had this high point, one of our associate pastors a while back when, who was an interim senior pastor. Um, he just was like, I just can't believe people at High Point Church would treat the servants of God this way. Mm-hmm. Like just the way people talk to him, that they, that they stood up to him, that they said, you can't do this, that they said, you said you were going to do this, but you actually did this. That's, that doesn't have integrity to it. And all this pushback, he would just, he was just like, like, how dare you? Like, question me. Um, I'm, I'm the servant of God, right? That's more prevalent in charismatic churches. Mm. The belief that like God anoints somebody. Right, right. And, and so if they're, if they're in a certain position of leadership, they're the anointed, they're God's anointed right. and therefore you should treat them like God's anointed. I can anointed. understand how that would happen in, in it. Yeah. If, especially if you're using the analogy of Saul being anointed and David right. saying, well, he has anointed Saul. So, right. 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 And Saul is the most clearly either either crazy or mentally ill or both. Sure. And by crazy, I mean just like filled with pride. Yeah. But he also might have been mentally ill or he might have been both. <laughs> and nobody really knows. Right. Other than the fact that it says in the Bible that God gave him an evil spirit. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So drive like, this home. Yeah. You're saying drive, like finish drive the up? question home. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like th- that's like a real thing. So I don't think you can, I don't think you can take numbers 12 or passages about Saul or anybody that, and just say, you see, God doesn't want us to confront leaders when they go bad yeah. or God does like, it's, it's not mm-hmm. like that. Like it's a judgment call. Like in numbers 12, God was on Moses's side mm-hmm. and they attacked him. But notice what Moses does. Like, here's the thing. If you're going to, if you're a leader and you're going to quote number 12, then act like Moses, you have to act like Moses yeah. and not fight for yourself. Yeah. You have to say, listen, I mean, what I would say if I thought it applied is I say this, I say, listen, read number 12, because I'm not going to fight you. Mm. I'm not going to fight you. And I'm going to let God fight for me. And he, that could be great for you if you're right. Yeah. And it will be really bad if you're wrong. Yeah. And, um, and may God may not adjudicate it in this life. We might end up going our separate ways and you might take over this church and, or whatever. And mm-hmm. like, who knows? Mm-hmm. I don't know, but I, I mean, I'm never going to quote that to somebody. I'm never going to say that mm-hmm. verse applies to me. Mm-hmm. I hope. Mm-hmm. So 
I, yeah, I just, I, I think, are there a lot of passages in the Bible that people use as mechanisms and fulcrums for spiritual abuse? Yes. Mm-hmm. But that's partly because authority is a real thing. And attacking people in authority when you shouldn't is a real thing. Right? Like, we get this activist mindset in our mind that, like, the world would be better if we tore down every authority. We ruined every hierarchy. We destroyed every way people take responsibility for others. Mm-hmm. And that's not, that leads actually to anarchic chaos and it's much worse. And once you realize that like authorities and organizations and even institutions are fundamentally good things and the reasons why our life are a lot better than they could otherwise have been, then you're like, oh crap, now I'm in this super complicated position of like believing in an, in an institution and in a leader and an authority that naturally corrupts because hierarchies naturally corrupt themselves. And yet I believe that they're necessary for things to be good shoot like this there is no answer Mm -hmm. there's only the tension and the utilization of virtue in making the thing well that's why in the scriptures virtue is is everything because if you have a virtuous king everything's great and if you have an unvirtuous king everything's bad and you can't get rid of hierarchy and you can't get rid of leadership and you can't like if you can tear down every hierarchy in america and we'll just have different ones in about 30 days Mm -hmm. and people will be leading them and people won't be equal well, we'll all be equal, but some people will be more equal than others to quote Orwell, yeah. you know, and then you'll have corruption again. And usually it's 10 times worse because you didn't set up the new hierarchy with all the checks on imbalances on power that were developed over hundreds of years in the last system that you had, etc. Okay. How does meekness apply to the Second Amendment right to bear arms? We find that guidance would be helpful during this time when a need to protect may need to happen. Should Christians own firearms for the express purpose of protection from violence against against family in our home? Is this a turn the other cheek time or not? How about as protection from an overthrow of the Constitution, takeover in the form of a civil war, etc.? Yeah. So I think in one sense, meekness is the mechanism by which we engage with anything we engage with. So if a Christian says, I believe that fundamental of the right of self-defense, which is a human right, is the capacity to defend oneself, which requires in many cases a firearm relative to the technologies available. If I'm going to be able to defend my own life or the life of others, I will have to obtain and be able to utilize firearm. Fine. Then the question is, how does one do that meekly? Right. Yeah. Um, there is a kind of warmongering way like, oh, I hope I get to use this on somebody. Right. And there is a like, I hope I never, never have, have to, to use this. Right. And knowing beforehand what accounts for that. And also like whether or not you are of sound mind and prepared to know when you would use it. Yeah. Because it's very easy to get angry. Yeah. And use a weapon, you know. Yeah. So. I, I do think, so I have, I have mulled over the passage in Luke's gospel where, where Jesus tells the disciples to, if they have to sell their coat to get a sword, because he's going away and he's not going to protect them like he was the yeah. first time he sent them out. And he explicitly instructs them to have swords. And then, and then Peter says, look, we've got two swords for presumably 12 apostles. And Jesus says, that's enough, right? Which isn't a lot of swords, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of commentators spiritualize that and say, the sword represents something, Right. I don't think that's true. I, I've worked with that passage a lot. I think Jesus was telling them that just like he told them not to take a staff and not to take a cloak before he was yeah. telling them to take those things. Now, do they metaphorically point to other things? Sure. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, like, are you we going to be, are you going to find mistreatment more now with Jesus not protecting you? Absolutely. Is that a metaphor for lots of persecution? Yes. But does that mean that he was telling them not, not really to get swords? No. 
No, he was telling them to get swords. And and then and then when Peter used it unmeekly mm-hmm. just a few verses later to cut off the ear of the high priest to defend Jesus, right. Jesus is like, what are you doing? Right. That's not what I meant. Right. So I think that, so here's what I would say. If you're a Christian, you really like Jesus rebuking Peter when he cuts off the high priest's servant's ear and says, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Great. But you've got to grapple with the other verse earlier when he says you need to get a sword. Yeah. And if you love the verse where Jesus <laughs> says you need a sword, yeah. you need to grapple with the fact that the first time when they were really actually physically in danger, uh-huh. that Peter pulled out his sword and actually used it. Jesus was upset. And was right. like, what are you doing? You can't do this. This is not what I meant. Yeah. I'm not a, this is, I'm not leading a rebellion. Yeah. That's not what I meant. And so uh, we've struggled with this, even on our elder board, we've debated this and like our elder board is even split as to whether or not anybody should carry a weapon in our church, mm-hmm. because on one level, we don't want to kill our enemies. We want to love them, even if they're trying to kill us. And another level, like if somebody who is a lunatic comes in here and just starts shooting everyone, right. um, it, is that what Jesus means by turning the other cheek, mm-hmm. right? Or by pursuing peace that we just, we just let somebody come in and just mow everybody down. Mm-hmm. Like, is that what you would do? Mm-hmm. Like, what, is that what you want? Somebody comes in with like unlimited ammo and starts shooting. He might shoot 200 people. Mm-hmm. And the right thing to do is be like, well, if he's killing us because we're Christians, you know, we should just let this happen. Right. Um, I, I just don't, I don't know. I don't think that's what that means. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I can't prove it doesn't mean that either. Yeah. Which I don't like. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a helpful answer though, to consider if you are going to bear arms, how do you do that meekly? Right. Like that, that, that then becomes the principle that you look at. Yeah. Cause I mean, we, like good. we have elders, for example, be like, look, I have no problem with you having a weapon in your home or even to carry with you in cases of personal self-defense. Or like if you come across a young woman who's being raped in an alley, like downtown yeah. that you utilize a weapon to protect her. Right. But at the same time, like if somebody's going to persecute you because you're a believer, even to the point of death, you don't, you can't shoot them. And on some level, like that is the most, in some ways it seems like the most direct reading of what Jesus is saying in a way, at least. That's, that's, that's the trouble is Jesus. Yeah. Jesus's sayings are like, a lot of them are hyperbolic, which are very difficult for people because it means like there could be exceptions, Mm -hmm. but overwhelmingly there isn't. Mm -hmm. And so, and we're just, as humans, we're so bad at determining when something should be an object, an 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 exception. exception, you know? Yeah. Okay, a few more questions. This one is from the sermon you preached on um, the divine providence. Is that what you called it? That or sovereign, his sovereignty, his divine sovereignty is unbrandable. I cannot remember what you called that one. Mm. But from the tenth, God's providence doesn't brand. I think is okay. Right, God's but, uh... providence. Could you comment on natural laws like gravity, et cetera, and how that works with God's sovereignty? Also, God is sovereign in that he is the rightful king. In time, every knee shall bow, yet he doesn't control us like whether or not a person gets drunk and drives. How does this work? Uh, First of all, I I guess I would say I don't, I don't pretend to know, right? Um, One of the things that's very difficult in both theology and morality, as well as in other things too, is we're just such limited creatures. We just don't know what we don't know. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so, so I have thought experiments. So one of the things I, I remember, I was, I was listening to an apologist. I think it was Bill Craig who was saying this, but it might've been somebody else who said, and the talk was on the problem of suffering. If God is good, why is there suffering in the world? If he's all powerful mm-hmm. and he's all knowing, why would mm-hmm. there be suffering? 
And he said, the guy said, listen, I don't have to tell you the answer. And maybe that we don't even know the answer. He said, what I, what I do, the burden of proof that is on me in what's called theodicy, the defense of the concept of God is I need to give you a, a mental experiment showing you that there's at least one logically possible way God could be innocent and righteous in what you see. (laughs) And if there's even one logical possibility, then you know, there's at least one logical possibility. There might be a billion, (laughs) but there's at least one. And if there's at least one, then you don't have God in the dock. Like he's not, you haven't proven him guilty because he could be innocent. Right. And there could be other reasons to believe he's innocent, like his self-revelation in Christ, his creation of the cosmos, blah, blah. So like, there could be other positive reasons to believe in him. And so in one sense, my, my goal in thinking about this isn't to say, okay, God, I have to know exactly what the answer is. Mm-hmm. What, I, what I need to do is to try to come up with some logical experiments or mental experiments where I could say, you know, if it was like this, right. it wouldn't be clear God was guilty. And yet these things would all still be true. So... And I have no idea what I don't know. Mm-hmm. And so it could be a, there could be a million other things I don't know. So I can't, I should not judge God on this, but I should look as to whether or not I should believe him on other things like his self-revelation in Christ, his self-revelation in scriptures, the graciousness of the gospel, what he's demonstrated in his love for people through divine history and so on. Does that make sense? So when it comes to things like God creating natural laws like gravity and whether or not God I don't even know what they mean by comment on. <laughs> That's a dangerous yeah. thing to write to me, right? Yes. Whether whether I believe that God intervenes in natural laws or if he always lets natural laws persist because he created them. And it would like there's there's a certain view within scientific naturalism that says if God creates a law, it's immoral for him. It. it would be yeah. it would be immoral. Yeah. Even if he had power power wise he could do it, it's immoral for him to interact with it. I think that's a really, really weak argument. I don't I mean there's no why would that be the case? Essentially it's a equivocation fallacy on the word law. Yeah. Right. If law, law scientifically does not mean moral, Mm -hmm. it just means this always happens. Mm -hmm. So if God intervenes in one of his laws, it's not like he's saying, well, murder was illegal and now it's going to be legal and then it's going to be illegal again. Law doesn't mean, doesn't have the moral connotation in terms of governance, right? When it's scientific. So because some materialistic thinkers have assumed the moral idea of political law in the scientific reality of repetitive law, they think that they can blame God morally for intervening in a law that's natural and repetitive. And I just think that that's like just a logical fallacy. Mm-hmm. And I don't see any reason to believe that's yeah, true. Right. So, um, so I think that comments on the natural law, what yeah. about how, how, if he is sovereign and the rightful King and yet whether or not a person gets drunk and drives, is he in right. control over that? Yeah. So I, I think the answer is that in everything that happens, God could prevent it if he wished to. However, I also believe that it's true that God can't do everything he wants to do. Is that the right way to say it? So for example, I think that, um, I don't think that God can make things good and evil at the same time. I don't think he can make two plus two equals six. I don't think that's what omnipotence means. Mm -hmm. I think it means he can do anything that is logically possible. And so if, for example, he does give free will to people, he can't also not. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Now he can give free will to people intermittently, he can give free will to people strangely, like through a nervous system that like, like our free will is a little bit strange relative to our nervous system. Cause like we create habits and then our will becomes less free. Sure. So like what free will specifically means for the kind of creatures we are mm-hmm. is not something we're even totally clear on, mm-hmm. but we have the capacity to have providential choices in certain ways, at least. Right. If he gives us that it's likely there's other things he can't do. So even though I don't believe in the free will defense as the fundamental defense of 
God's justice. I do believe it gets at something important that if God chooses one thing, it may be that he cannot choose another thing. If he chooses A, it may be that he can't choose B. Mm-hmm. He might be able to choose A and C and F, but right. he might not be able to choose A and B and R. Right. And we don't know. We have no idea what those decision trees look like mm-hmm. as human beings. Mm-hmm. And so it may be that because God chose A, E, and F, he couldn't choose B and B was to allow Fred to drink and drive and kill Aaron. Right. Does that make sense? And so um, I just, I'm like, I'm just completely agnostic on whether or not we can, we, like whether or not God did a good job. I mean, I believe God did a good job because I believe for other reasons, God is righteous altogether and that no one has ever been God's counselor and he's ultimately wise and he has demonstrated his wisdom in Christ. I, I can't, I don't, I can't show that God is perfectly wise by t- looking at what happened in Dane County over the last three years and say, don't you see that God is so good? I can't do that. I'm not omnipotent enough. I just yeah. can't, I can't collate everything right. and make an argument. That's one of the reasons why I believe it's so critical that God has engaged, not just in natural revelation, like in creation and in the human conscience and so on, but in special revelation, the man, Jesus Christ, his actions and sacred history and their inscripturation in the Bible by giving us those special revelations. Right. He tells us what he's like. So if I trust him, I can believe that if I Mm. did know everything about his providence, I would say everything you did has been good and wise and perfect altogether. Mm -hmm. But I can't look at what happened and determine that myself. I don't have the capacity to make those judgments. But what I struggle with is when my atheist friends, like the village atheist person thinks they can and I, I struggle because they, they do it in such a way as, as to pretend and they believe themselves to be very sophisticated. But to me, it's the worst kind of fundamentalism. Mm. How can you be so small minded mm. is how I feel. You know, what I think about that. a very helpful um, movie that I think illustrates this really well is the movie, The Imitation Game, um, which was about decoding German messages mm-hmm. um, to know when the Germans were going to where they were going to attack next Mm -hmm. Um, and the decisions that the British, I think Navy had to make about what attack to allow Mm -hmm. so that they could win the larger war. Oh, to pretend they didn't know. Yeah. So that they could pretend they didn't know so that the Germans wouldn't understand that they had cracked the code Code, so that they could then. Right. Which means allowing some people to die. Like some mom in Bristol's son was going to die who could have lived. And they, the way they portrayed that in the, well, I won't say it, but, um, you, if this is something you struggle with, I genuinely think you should watch this movie. Yeah. Um, because I think it portrays this idea really well. Yeah. And but, I think, I think it's really important for people to recognize that omnipotence doesn't mean God can do anything you can imagine. He probably ought to be able to do. Mm-hmm. It may be that something you imagine he should be able to do is not something he could do if he made other choices yeah. and you don't know what those other choices are. And so it, it's really foolish right. to be like, oh, well, he wouldn't have let my mom die. You have no idea mm-hmm. what choices God made and for what reasons. And you can't say that he was wrong because he didn't treat your mom fairly or something like that because God is the one who can restore life. Mm-hmm. So there is another life that God gives. So there's nothing that God has taken or away or allowed to happen that he can't ultimately restore. Like if I take a life, I can't restore that life. Right. But God can't. His relationship to life and death is fundamentally different than ours. And so the idea that he rewards or he looks upon virtue or faith and that that's what matters to him fundamentally in terms of what happens in this world, um, especially when people don't even want to look at the world the way God says he looks at it in the scriptures and then judge it on the basis of other things that God explicitly says he doesn't care about, like our comfort, for example, <laughs> they, they're just like they, they're 
they're trying to cross many a broken bridge to get to where they want to go logically. And, and yet sometimes they'll get there with such certainty that it shows me that the line of reasoning is more emotional than it is rational. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's more that I want to say about that, but I'm going to move on. Okay. Okay. I'm going to ask two questions from the sermon on martyrdom. Okay. The first is I go to church every week, but I don't feel, I don't, I I guess this isn't quite as related to martyrdom. So I'm going to ask this one next or last. Okay. Um, how do you respond to someone who believes in being saved from damnation and believes they are saved, but do not need a relationship with God? So one of the things that's really helped me with this is Ryan T. Anderson's books on marriage. So he, he wrote a book, not called, I think it was just called The Case for Marriage. And essentially he was arguing against redefining marriage so as to include variations on marriage like same-sex couples or um polyamorous like groups or whatever. Yeah. Right. And what he said was, is that the biblical definition of marriage was that it was a comprehensive relationship, including receiving life in procreation, but also shared love and lifelong union and all those kinds of things. And that the relationship was, was comprehensive that to get one thing, you got everything. Does that make sense? And to define it as one justice did that opened the door, of course, for the Obergefell decision, which is that, what marriage is, is the legal definition of your one romantic other. Well, that's never been the Christian definition. So if that's the legal definition, then you, then same sex unions are married. Mm -hmm. There's no question about Mm -hmm. that. And you could have all kinds of different marriages and I'm not sure why it would be limited to one. And I don't think it will be. I think 20 years from now it will be broader than that. Um, But if it's the Christian definition, which is the comprehensive union of complementary persons together in a single union, right. To receiving all these things together, mutual care, recreational pleasure, receiving of new life, caring for one another through the stages of life, all of that. And it all comes together. You begin to realize that when God refers to the church as the bride of Christ, and you begin to look at mm-hmm. the metaphors and the, what, what it means, being saved from damnation is being saved into the relationship with God. They're all one thing. It's, it's yeah. a comprehensive thing. Yeah. God doesn't save us from damnation to idolatry, which is what it is. If you don't want a relationship with God, that is a form of idolatry. You have another God and he's not, God's not it. And you're, he, he would be saving you from damnation into damnation. God doesn't do that. And so he saves you into a comprehensive relationship, which includes a relationship with him. I mean, you were made to know God and to enjoy him forever. Mm-hmm. That is, it says in the Westminster confession, the sole purpose of man. And I think that's correct. Mm-hmm. And so to be saved from damnation, but not to your purpose or your meaning to have a relationship with God that isn't comprehensive, but is all cart as you define it. It just doesn't make any sense relative to how God reveals what he does and how he does it. Yeah. So the idea of a comprehensive relationship that some things go together, whether you like them to or not mm-hmm. is something that I think a lot of humans have to grapple with because we are so used to as economic players. We're so used to things being a la carte. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would say this, if the person who said that to me was a, was a political progressive and they believed that you had like all these inherent obligations to government and other people around you that were just by the nature of you living in a human society. Right. I might use that metaphor. Yeah. Because if they already, because I don't believe that metaphor, but if they believe that metaphor, I might be like, look, you, you believe you have this relationship with the government mm-hmm. that like, if you get one thing, you get you everything. To, yeah, it all yeah. goes together and you're obligated to do all of it at once. Why would God be any different? If you believe that's true government, why wouldn't God believe that in his true governance? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it's, it's the libertarians that 
will struggle with that. Yeah. It's kind of like, well, that's all just coercion, and uh-huh. I should be I should be able to go through all of life all yeah. cart. And that's one of the and that's the, one of the philosophical problems with political liberalism or not liberalism libertarianism. libertarianism is because they don't understand that some things go with other things right. in ways that morally you can't detach. Right. Right. Okay. Here's our last question. This is a person who said, I go to church every week, but I don't feel myself getting closer to God. How can I overcome this and become closer to God? Okay. You're not going to like this answer. Um, partly because it's going to feel incredibly self-promoting for me to say this. Okay. Get the book substance and read it and study it. I'm going to give you the short answer for the most common reason people experience these symptoms, Mm -hmm. spiritually speaking. There are other reasons, but without going into a more lengthy context of pastoral care, I can't tell them. So um, in this mode, here's my answer. If this doesn't work, then you need to go see a spiritual guide, a pastor or a small group leader, somebody who can help you. Okay. Mm -hmm. Cause you need personal, you need somebody to look at you as a whole person and help you work through this. Okay. The answer is usually this. Um, We have two religions. One is we believe in Jesus, a convictional religion. The other is an absorbed religion that the Bible calls mammon or worldliness or being of this world. What happens is because our second religion, this religion of worldliness is absorbed, we don't realize we're believing in it. And so it's programming our heart and what our heart believes and feels and cares about without us knowing. So that when the voice of the world comes along and says something like, I love you, this is great, right? We go, oh my gosh, you speak my heart language. You know me. One one, one metaphor I use for this is imagine there's like a 16 year old girl. She's never dated a guy, but she has written in diaries for like, since she was like nine, since she could write, right? Mm -hmm. And this boy who like doesn't really care about it that much, but just like wants to get her. Mm -hmm. He like finds a way to get in her house and and takes all these diaries and he like photocopies them all, puts them all back, right? And then he reads every, every word. And so he knows everything about her heart, right? And then he just takes her for a ride. And she's like, he's my soulmate. He knows me. He loves me. He cares, right? And he doesn't really. He just read, he just read your diaries, right? The difference with worldliness is, is that the worldliness through the flesh programs your diaries. It, it programs your heart language. So that then when it talks to you later, you feel like it knows you. But it's not because it knows you. It's because it's just feeding worldliness into your worldliness. Mm-hmm. What needs to happen is you actually need the con- the con- the confronting boyfriend, right? The one who's like, no, that's all wrong. Mm-hmm. The, the one who you're like, you want to just say, you don't get me. You don't understand me, right? That's the true parent. The one who really knows you and really understands where you are developmentally and the stuff that you can't even see about yourself. Mm-hmm. And like that person comes in and really speaks the truth to lead you out of the slavery of the person who's been whispering into your heart and, and ordering yeah. your emotions around its own manipulations. <clears throat> Does that make sense? And so the reality is, is that we've all been in a cult for years and we've been brainwashed and programmed around this thing Jesus called worldliness or the worship of mammon. And so it's one of the reasons why we don't naturally feel the way we're meant to feel. We don't feel free. We don't feel the joy. We don't feel yeah. that thankfulness because we're operating the programming of the absorbed religion of worldliness. And yet we're trying to connect with emotionally this convictional reality of Christ crucified and risen for us. And we, we don't have the capacity for it until we begin to unchoke our hearts from the truths of worldliness. And so mm-hmm. it's one of the reasons why I wrote the book Substance is I wanted people to be able to see that 
and right. really leave it. And when you do that, you begin to feel the freedom, mm-hmm. the ease, the rest. You begin to be able to release some of the anxiety. You begin to see the beauty of what Christ has done and how even when he treats you in a hard way, it's really good. Mm-hmm. And it's it's helpful freeing, strengthening, and developing. And 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 you you'd never want anything else. So in most cases, I think that's the issue, is that we have been programmed and absorbed the religion of worldliness. And so when the word of Christ is spoken to us, and even when we think we're believing it, it doesn't produce the, what it does. And so one of the things I do in the book Substance is I, I put out a list of symptoms. I go backwards because if I say the problems were in this people, nobody believes me. But if I, I say, here's 12 symptoms that you might be experiencing emotionally re- relative to your faith. And they're like, oh my gosh. I'm like, you feel kind of like choked or smothered. You feel resentful towards God. You feel, and I go through all of them. They're like, oh my gosh, I feel all this. You're like, okay, listen. Yeah. There, Jesus talks about all the symptoms right? and he says exactly what produces them. And they're like, well, what is it? I'm like, well, here's the thing I'm going to tell you. And you're going to think it's not sophisticated enough. And they're like, no, tell me. Mm-hmm. I was like, it's worldliness. And you can see all the joy go out of their face. Cause they're like, no, that can't possibly be it. But it is. Yeah. And so Dostoevsky said in the introduction to the brothers Karamazov, we are not as sophisticated as we think we are. And it's when you embrace the humiliating nature of your own, of your own personal moral infant, in terms of like what's really going on right. that you can really be freed by what turns out to be an incredibly simple blind spot, Yeah, you know? And so we have to get rid of one of the two religions. Cause Jesus says, if you have, if you try to love both God and mammon, you will love one, hate the other. And what he means is you'll love mammon. You'll hate God. Yeah. So what I think is encouraging about that though, that answer is that there is an answer yeah. <laughs> that Jesus has a solution for those who will hear. Mm-hmm. And, and that your faith in Jesus isn't bad. Yeah. Right. The plant is good. It's just being choked by the weeds. Yeah. And so right. if you just pull the weeds, the plant will grow. Yeah. And that's, that's hopeful that mm-hmm. they're, cause I think, I don't know, especially with those sorts of discontentment, dissatisfaction, it's easy to think that there is no solution and to become wrapped up in the hopelessness of that. And then for that reason, just check out, mm-hmm. but that isn't the message yeah. Jesus brings. Yeah, and this is this is the really sinister way Christians are losing their faith right now. Yeah, they think it's the, the senior pastors that like are caught with prostitutes or whatever. Like, what, like what, I don't know what the, the specific thing in people's heads are, but what's happening is in their hearts they just feel like Christianity is not believable. Yeah, and they don't know why, and they think it's rational because what presents itself to their inner psychology are some kind of reason that's coming up intuitively. But it's not that. What it is, is is that worldliness is you've so just absorbed it because you're just in the soup all day long, constantly. Mm -hmm. And you just are, you're like, I I, I noticed this, like, if you just watch teenagers, watch YouTube videos. And they're like, these don't affect me. And they're just, they're oblivious. Like I I watch some of of our younger people at church and they're like, oh yeah, I use, and they're like, they're literally, they can't put their phone away. And they're like, yeah, social media. I literally had this one kid, they were at a retreat. They never put their phone away. And they were like, yeah, social media doesn't affect me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I, is, is it really possible? You're just screwing with me, right? <laughs> you don't really think that. Mm-hmm. And they were like, honestly, gosh, they, like, they did. Mm-hmm. They believed that. It's amazing how oblivious we are. And once you get serious about the fact that you have been brainwashed by worldliness and it's, it's ordered and orchestrated all your emotions and it's messed with your plausibility structures and that's why you don't think Jesus is believable. It's not because he's not believable. It's because if you worship mammon, following him is unthinkable. And so the intuitions that come from mammon make him unbelievable. Once you realize that you're just in this mammon cult that exists all around us, you're like, Oh my gosh. 
And then once you see it, it's hard, it's hard to not unsee it. It's right. Like, and it's incredibly helpful, but it's really painful and humiliating and difficult, but it's so freeing. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's what, I mean, Jesus literally said, take my yoke on you. That is like, put this backpack on Mm -hmm. and pull this like, like cart. Like it's really, that's what he's like, you'll find it to be easy and light. Yeah. That's that's meant to be like the the camel going through the eye of a needle. It's like a complete contradiction in terms. Like it's completely impossible. Yeah. But that's Jesus is always like that. He's always like, listen, I'm going to tell you something that sounds impossible, but if you do it, you're really letting go of this world and you really trust him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then something supernatural happens. Again, thank you to everybody who sent in these questions. Thank you for listening. Just to reiterate what we said at the beginning, our desire is that this would help you to grow at, into a substantive disciple as a part of your local church, wherever that is, if it's at High Point or some other church, um, that this would be something that uh, engages you and equips you. <laughs> yeah. So thanks for listening. episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.